welcome back to another episode of Let's Get Into It. I'm Bree. I'm the host of this podcast, an online course creator and a blogger, and also a professional dog walker, except I only walk one dog, and it's my dog, but it's more like I feel like he's walking me more than I'm walking him, so I kind of feel like it's a job. (laughs) I just had two bowls of chili and two pieces of cornbread and I feel like I'm in food coma. It's like raining and stormy here. So I was like, you know, let's throw some chili in the crock pot. Let's make some cornbread. And I loved, enjoyed the meal, but then I realized I had to record this intro and I was like, oh, this is problematic. So I literally just like did a sprint (laughs) around my apartment to get some blood flowing. Um, Okay, so today's guest is super famous, super popular, super humble, Um, (laughs) someone I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, and this is actually your guys' request, so, you know, I like to, I like to deliver results, I'm just kidding, it's, the guest today is my dad, Um, and when I say that he is the biggest diva I've had on the get, on the show, I'm not being melodramatic. Um, he actually hates the word melodramatic. What does he call What is he says? It's super. He doesn't say it's melodramatic. What do you call? What do you say with instead of melodramatic? He calls it ultra dramatic. I'm like, it's melodramatic and he doesn't get it anyway. He's the biggest diva. I've done what? Over a hundred episodes. I've been guests on other people's shows I don't even know how many out of the over 100 episodes, how many episodes I've had guests, but we had to first I had to like coax him into doing this. Like there was a whole a master plan. I had to kind of like bombard him and like force him to do this. And then he was like, "Okay, but first, like, I need some water. Okay, let's get some water. Then we had to adjust adjust the thermostat because he thought it was too cold. I had a fan on. He didn't want the fan on. So then he needed a snack. And then there was a bathroom break. And I was like, okay, I guess I need to, you know, get a bigger apartment so I can have a green room, apparently, because this is like a TV appearance. <sighs> but he's here and he did it. And he originally, like, when I, you know, brought him out and he was like, I'm just going to chill out. You know, I'm just going to say a couple words here and there. Just give my input. Okay. Um, you can tell by the length of this episode, he had some things to say, <laughs> um, which I love. I think it's a really good episode. We talk a lot about his career and I think just how the nature of business has kind of changed over the years. And we talk a lot about how his childhood, how my grandparents, you know, came to America, didn't have a lot of money um, or had not not, even not a little bit of money. Like they had no money. (laughs) They didn't have a car. Like they didn't really speak English, like just all of those things. And it, it was interesting for me to hear because I kind of forget, you know, parts of my childhood and parts of like the things that my dad has taught me. Um, growing up that I think really contribute to the, I don't want to say confidence, but just the way that I go about doing things in my life and doing 
business and, and creating the things that I've created and the success that I've had. And so it was just really interesting to hear that conversation um, kind of unfold. So I think you guys will really enjoy this. I'm really trying to convince him to start his own podcast or just come on my podcast maybe once a month maybe every other month. I don't know how much more diva I can, you know, handle <laughs> on my podcast. But I, if you guys do enjoy this, please leave a review on the podcast. Leave a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. You can hit me up on Instagram at livingbreely and share your feedback if you did like this episode. I'd love to hear from you. And I will see you next week for two new episodes. Yep, that's right. All right, I'll talk to you guys later. Be kind, be well, be grateful. Love you, mean it. Bye. Why don't you start by telling everyone what it's like to be my dad? <laughs> I don't think we have all day. Um, to, to tell you the truth, and I don't say this enough about my daughter, I'm very proud of her. Um, she's always been a daddy's girl um, I was in my family dynamic with my father being in the military all the time uh, you no know, I would say in my lifetime until I probably got into high school 80% um, of our upbringing was through our mother um, who was a very funny person um, uh, always opened up us to conversation um, always allowed us to express our feelings and our father who was a military person uh, was a complete opposite so um, I've learned some of the good and bad of of my parents uh, per, uh, parental skills and I always told myself that if if I ever had children or a child that um, I would be more involved in, in their life um, and teaching them um, skills that they could use in the outside which I think um, helped <laughs> Um, my, my daughter's got a very good business acumen considering she's only 27, but in the days, in the early days of, of my career in the leadership, uh, a, a company I worked for, um, really encouraged the bring your daughter to work day. Um, that was oh, an annual, forgot about those yeah, days. Yeah, those, that was an annual event that I always looked forward to and, and my staff would put my daughter to work, um, and reward her with candy and treats from the, from the gift shop. But, um, you know, <laughs> early on, you know, she, she really wanted to be with me, not because she was taking a day out of school, but she would be sitting at meetings very quietly in the corner, observing what it's like to be in a meeting, um, working with some of my staff on, on just basic administrative office stuff, you know, filing away things and, you know, um, and, and with very little um, instruction. And then she could just carry on uh you know very minimal supervision which says a lot about her um her mindset and her intelligence so and um you know after as the day ended uh during those times of bring your daughter to work day um the staff would say you know we wish we had you know she could work with us every day but because of child care labor laws <laughs> in, in california that was that was impossible or how about when i was a kid how i would want like any like birthday money or allowance, I would want to go to Office Depot and get yeah. office supplies. Yeah. Like Toys R Us was not like a big deal for me. It no. was office or office supplies, <laughs> pens, papers. 
uh, things like that. So, you know, she's she's always had that that acumen and just listening. I think she's a good listener because she learns from those kind of um, uh, things. So um, in, a, in a kind of a nutshell, I've been in um, the information technology realm for since probably 1985. That's when the first IBM PC first came out, um, 85, 86. Some of my first memories are of you getting the gateway computer, that mm. big box, CalPrint box, and like building it in the office. Yeah. Back in the days, there were already mail catalog companies like Gateway and Dell, um, where, you know, I think I either had to call it in uh, with the specs. There were several computer publications where they would have their specials. You called an 800 number and saying, I want this. And you gave them your credit card number. And then as the internet came about in 1995 with AOL and your dial-up services with modems and things like that, DSL, um, things started to transition into online stuff. I remember building my own computer too. Um, there's an area in San Diego that used to be like the... Uh, computer parts bin of, of San Diego where you could just go to different stores and buy the cases, buy the power supplies, buy the motherboards, the oh, CPUs, wow. the video cards, the monitors at the time, and just piece everything together. I think it was more trouble for what it was worth, but just taking that satisfaction of, of building your own system and, you know, the heart, you know, formatting the hard drives, loading the operating systems, and loading all the programs at the time. Would you do it again? No. Because the, the cost to to drive around and get all that stuff and then put it together and the effort um, buying the software like you have to have like a it has to be like a hobby it has like, to be a hobby yeah. it has to be a hobby because the cost to wait especially in my career and this is what I've always done one of my managers taught me this is you know what is the effort required to do something based on your compensation and I'll give you an example of that when I was at a a, a a local hospital here we would have a meeting with uh, the executives and departments would have to justify the expense say for a laptop and back then laptops were outrageously priced four five six grand Whoa. and uh, and the thing was is that they it was already approved on on the capital budget which was several months before the fiscal year started and so we're going around the room and everyone's giving their opinion about whether or not we should buy this laptop for this department who already got it approved and I remember our CIO, she looked around the room and said, in the 15 minutes we just discussed approving this one laptop, we could probably have bought in five or six. Yeah, because you have to t total everyone's salary. Total hourly. everyone's salary just to say yes or no or ask questions when it's already been approved. So I've taken that into my personal life and said to myself, if I could do this myself, and it's not going to require a lot of effort. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. But if it's going to require some effort and based on, on you know, several factors like my compensation and my, and my time, which I value, um, you know, I'd rather have somebody else do it. Which is why you don't cook. True. <laughs> um, like he literally factors in the dishes and the soap and the effort to cook. He's like, I'd rather it's the, the, easier for the me. To the the, 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 the my carbon footprint to go to the grocery store to buy that stuff, bring it home, store it in a refrigerator, which is another carbon footprint, um, and yeah. then take it out. Okay, I turn think on that's the, like an extreme example. Turn on the oven, you know, turn on the stove. Yeah. I so, mean, I get that. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, that's that's been my 
that's been my career and, and dabbled with that has been uh, uh, you know some business uh, marketing kind of things um, helping some of my colleagues who've become friends or friends that have become colleagues um, startup businesses um, things like that so um, I've had an enriching life I, I can't complain I mean I've had some struggles along the way but I I feel that people do have those struggles it only makes you stronger and makes you relook at life sometimes but um, hopefully you know uh, as my daughter continues these types of um, social awareness that um, not only my legacy but eventually her legacy will carry on because this media is going to be stored forever I mean um, I don't think um, you know there's a way uh, that you know this this will go away some either my, my grandkids if my daughter decides to have kids will look upon some of her podcasts and say wow oh, that Jesus. yeah that's mom <laughs> you know that you know what's mom saying back then it's just like me looking at some of my old albums when I was a child and and one of those examples is um, about 10 years ago before my parents started having health problems I didn't realize and because I don't remember that my parents smoked they smoked cigarettes. Oh, yeah. And we so we were going through some albums, and there was a picture of me in Japan because my father was in the military. And there's a picture of me dressed all up in a tuxedo standing in front of a Christmas tree, and I was like, what's in my mouth? It was a cigarette. <laughs> and it wasn't a toy cigarette. It was my father's. And uh, I said, where did I get the cigarette, Mom or Mom or Dad? And he says, well, we used to smoke. And I didn't know that. And so... Especially uh, Grandpa. Yeah, so... Um, well, I think for me it was my, my your grandmother, my mother. I can't imagine her smoking, but she smoked. And so when uh, my dad got his orders to finally come to the United States, specifically San Diego, um, you know they had to uh, rent an apartment and everything. And I think back then it was like forty bucks a month in 1963. And uh, I asked my mom and dad, "Why did you eventually quit smoking?" Because I thought maybe it was a health thing that they said, but. No, it was because they couldn't afford it. It was getting going to be too expensive, especially when they got to the United States. In fact, you know, my dad not only had his Navy job, but um, I forgot that he also worked at nights as a busboy and then eventually being promoted to a major D for a restaurant somewhere in Point Loma. And back then, I think he either walked to work or took a cab or took a bus because my parents didn't know how to drive, let alone afford a car. So... Um, you know, I've, I've, I've had humble beginnings. Uh, my sister Nina at the time, uh, our, other Su our other sister Susan wasn't born until the late 60s. Um, but, you know, we came, uh, I came from, from humble beginnings. I, and uh, one of those examples is um, when we would go <clears throat> clothing uh, shopping for the school year. And to me, this was the norm. Um, and some of my friends didn't think it was the norm, but, you know, my mom would buy the, my pants or my jeans, <laughs> you know, a couple sizes longer and a couple sizes bigger, especially, and also my tennis shoes, they would be a couple sizes bigger and she would just stuff Kleenex in them. And then my mom was a seamstress, so she would take in the waist and kind of hem up the pants. And every year she would just take it out if I grew, if I, you know, got a little bigger, she just, um, take out the waist and take down the hem and then I as I forgot about that grandma used to just sew all the time yeah and then uh, if my shoes if my feet were starting to get bigger she'd just take out the Kleenex and then I would have the, these clothes maybe for one an additional year or additional year and a half that's the way my mom um, and, and my parents would save money 
Right. I mean, you're talking, again, the early 60s. Um, you're a family of four, myself, my sister Nina, my mom and my dad. I don't know what a Navy man was m- making back then, especially a, a sailor that didn't really have a rank yet. And he was going to uh, the Naval Training Center, the culinary school in San Diego. And again, no car. Um, my dad was the, only, was the sole um, provider. provider. And my mom basically did everything. What I think is really interesting, too, is, like, Grandma and Grandpa didn't know, like, American food. Like, Grandpa did had was, like, learning how to make these, like, traditional American dishes. Like, what? Meatloaf. Meatloaf. Um, spaghetti. Well, I'm talking, you know, foods that weren't Filipino. So, right. um, and I was a very picky eater. Um, <laughs> still I, I still am. Um, I was always the last one at the table because I just didn't really care for some of the um, tastes and consistency and some of the texture of the Filipino food that my mom would prepare. But as my dad was going to culinary school, he started introducing dishes that my mom and dad probably haven't heard, not necessarily heard, but uh, made before, like simple meatloaf, um, spaghetti, uh, a BLT sandwich. Um, Pancakes. So, um, he would introduce these foods to the home, and I would just dig in and, and, and like them. So um, uh, I think at that point, my my parents started mixing up the types of foods we would have every day. Um, you know, either Filipino and American, quote quote American and American, um, and or strictly just just Filipino. I mean, there were certain dishes obviously I liked. I love my mom's fried rice. I love my mom's uh, pancit bihon, which is the thin uh, noodles, not the thicker ones. And obviously um, um, her lumpia, which is like a uh, Filipino egg roll. Yeah. So what do you think made you get into computers to begin with? Well, to be honest with you, it was, it was, a, it was my girlfriend at the time. And I don't know if you know that, Brianna, but... I oh. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, so I, I, I was dating a gal that was going to San Diego State um, taking computer science. And back then, um, there was no no internet uh, per se or a way for her to remote in from home. I don't think she even had a computer at home um, back then to compl- com- finish her programming projects. So, um, you know, I would get off work. Um, she worked, she was a little younger than me, so she worked part-time at a fast food place. And um, after I'd get off work, you know, clean myself up, we'd maybe have a quick bite, and I would go down with her to San Diego State at night and just sit with her in her lab as she's trying to finish these projects. And that's how I started getting interested in that. At the time, I was working in healthcare, and back then everything was a manual process. And then when the hospital made its decision to start modernizing some of the processes they did it kind of was hand in hand with the relationship i was having with this um with my girlfriend at the time so um that's how i got all started in this um i set up a, uh, the first rudimentary network for our medical records department this is before ethernet this is before internet all this other stuff and uh um through things i couldn't control i ended up working for the it department at the hospital i was working at and things started um, from there and slowly progressed. So um, I again, those were somewhat humble beginnings because be- before I met my, my um, girlfriend at the time, I was at a, at a rudimentary job, even though I had um, 
you know, a business administration degree, I was at a job that I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, where else am I going to go? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, am I going to be doing this for the next, you know, 25, this, is this really my career path um, in doing this job or is there, is there opportunities for advancement to do something else? And which kind of segues into the thing I wanted to discuss because when I was at that hospital, my goal was to stay at that hospital, work the 25 or 30 years and retire. But what I was looking for was my own professional and personal growth. And at the time when the hospital started modernizing, that's when I kind of jumped on that idea. And um, and I, and then again, coincidentally, I was already dating someone that was going to be in that computer field where, as you know, everyone here knows, uh, computers pretty much modernized everything, right. uh, especially in healthcare. Now you have electronic health records um, uh, and things like that. And of course, the paradigm shift, you know, kind of scared or made people uncomfortable that they were going to be replaced. But I think what that enveloped was um, enhancing one's skill set and changing the way processes processes are made. So in every ancillary department that you have now in healthcare, there's usually a system component. So you have cardiology, they have you know, EKGs. EKGs, and that's all put in the computer. So you usually need an analyst for that, medical records, or now it's called health information management. Everything's online, but you still need someone to do quality checks on what kind of data is being input. If they're scanning in paper records, is it being scanned to the right record? Is it legible? Um, can you see it on the screen? So you still have those components. So those staff that felt they were going to be outplaced, I, I believe they've, they've pretty much um, either found um, a different uh, job within those departments because they're, they're doing something else. So... There's uh, always a human element to computers. I think I don't think it's just one. I don't think we'll ever be completely replaced because I still think there has to be some like a service or some type of human interaction with with the computers, which is why like AI is so terrifying. <laughs> yes, but um, what we think of AI is somewhat AI uh, is art artificial intelligence by the way um but i think that's where you think a machine's going to think for you on your next step but i think there are certain components that have already been happening and i'll give you an example specifically with healthcare as you know healthcare is a business they have to control costs um their services are being are reimbursed by either government or private insurance companies so there's a component that's not really automated, but when a patient presents themselves to the study of the emergency room for a particular condition, there are already background process going in place and saying, oh, this person came in, um, let's say, for uh, a broken bone. So the nurse or whoever engages that pa uh, patient initially will put in this diagnosis and automatically in most EHR systems, There'll be processes in the background to say, this is the type of band-aid you need. These are the type of resources you need. Um, this is the severity level. So if you have someone that comes in with a heart attack, obviously they're going to see that patient first before this patient that has a broken bone. So there's all these um, intelligent processes that are happening behind the scenes that tell folks, these are the types of things you need to order for this particular initial diagnosis. Now, if things change, you change that in the system, then it says, okay, well... 
you may need to go to ortho and this may need now uh, an x-ray or CT scan or they find something else then these other processes automatically kick in that way it takes out the guesswork from the nurse it takes out the guesswork from the physician obviously the physician is the last person to say anything to say well wait a minute I don't agree with that I'm gonna override it so right. we, we still give the caregivers an ability to override something that they can see that has not necessarily been processed in the system so you've got some of these processes already going in the background again to um, to maximize your resources in the emergency room and also maximize the reimbursements that the hospitals are going to get from the insurance companies medical medicare they only pay so many cents to the dollar and so you've and unfortunately and i've had to learn this for the past 10 years because you know uh, working for nonprofits, it was always about the patients and right. and collecting the money was not um, a priority at the time unfortunately nonprofits who thought of this um, would shortly either be in a bad fiscal um, straits, dire straits, and you know would have to make some drastic changes to personnel. And I'm talking about layoffs. So um, without these types of processes in place, then you're going to maximize um, your your ER time. That's why ERs are growing. That's why they could see more patients because you have these processes in place. ERs are always busy. Um, I don't know if I don't know if there's any studies that show wait times are any better. Probably because they're seeing more patients because of these processes. That's that's my that's my opinion. Yeah, that could go into like an entire conversation about healthcare in general. Um, is is the amount of time a doctor is actually sitting down with a patient and talking to them? But what working for? I think you had the biggest professional growth when you worked for a nonprofit, and I think it was because of the mentorship that you had while you were there you had some really great bosses that like are seriously like family friends you know like these people are like people that i would call like uncles and aunts yes i was very blessed to work for a cio um and a director um who always saw potential in me and kind of would nudge me because i would ask him i would say you want me to do this particular task and I think one of the uh, one of my directors he was kind of um, very direct no nonsense um, bull in a china shop but um, you know we had to kind of tame him which we did uh, because there were some other personal challenges in his life that caused him to relook and rethink um, you know things in his life but um, I remember him a approaching me and I was an applications manager so I my team managed all the applications for this hospital so you know the order entry system physician physician order entry the pharmacy system um, you know lab systems the um, the supply systems and things like that he came up to me because a project was failing and this project was more on the technical side and at the time I was technical enough but not technical and he approached me because he said Edwin your teams are very self-sufficient they don't really rely on you a lot for daily operations I need you to take over this project and it was a voice over IP which we call VoIP and we were just getting into that and what that technology entails is that your phones are now a network device and so it goes through a regular network switch uh, your computers attached to the phone 
and that's how you get all your your uh, network and internet services and it was called uh, VoIP and we were, we were using Cisco and the hospital I was working at is still using Cisco to this day and so all, the first thing I said to him was I said I, I really don't know anything about this type of project and he says don't worry I know you could do it you don't it's not really you're not programming switches you're not programming phones but this team needs direction the person who's leading it now um, their department's falling apart because they need that person and sh and this person's not being available so there was about a week week and a half of a transition the person that um, was doing the project was not very happy about it uh, because they enjoyed that that process and then I had to tell my team we had to uh, uh, reshuffle some some priorities which was fine and so I took it on and that's how um, I got my feet wet with technology and when this director left um, he recommended the CIO that I now become the director of IT and that's how I, I absorbed that position and I don't think it was necessarily my technical skills I really think it was my people skills because I was able to bring together you know the external customers explain to them what was going on and then you have your technical team and being able to um, dumb it down and, and, and present it in a way that it could be people, uh, can understand. people could understand and then also working with the other teams because when you take down a site to do a network conversion, obviously applications will not be available. So, um, uh, you know, I had to work with the apps team, my team. So I was able to bridge the gap because these two teams would lob stuff back and forth, you know, no commute, failure to communicate. So I was able to bridge that gap and to get the, the department to work cohesively. So um, an example of that, if the applications team was changing something in an application, they would now communicate that to our help desk, which fell under infrastructure. So if the help desk started getting all these phone calls about something not working, at least they were aware that there was a change. Now, this was early on before project management and change control that was really adopted in, in healthcare. Um, but that's what we, we were able to all to do collectively. And I think um, to that credit, I still have former staff that will ping me. Um, we still have our cell numbers. Hey Edwin, can I use you as a resource? I'm applying for this job. Can you? Can I use you as a reference? I said absolutely. In fact, just tell me you're going to use. You don't have to ask anymore. Just tell me that you're using me as a reference, so I can expect a phone call from somebody. Yeah. So that tells me a lot about not only myself, but the people that I worked with. That they still we can still count on each other um, to kind of chat about what's going to go on in their personal life and, and professional life. Well, I think you've always been really good at bridging that gap of, like, explaining technical processes to people who, like, don't understand, like me. <laughs> like, okay, this is like, okay, think of it like you're on your phone and you're trying to do this and you can't do this. Like, he's so good at that. And I think that that's super important in a really technical position because if you're trying to explain to, like, a CFO or a marketing person why they can't log on to their system like you kind of have to I don't want to say dumb it down because I feel like that's insulting someone's intelligence but making it in making it comprehend comprehend what am I trying to say comprehensive comprehensive to what they're trying to do and like why they can't access something or why something is down but I will tell you the the people I'm working now are are younger I wouldn't and, and, and they're already tech savvy. So the questions now are like a little bit more complex. Um, hey, I could log in, but I'm getting this error. 
it's yeah. accepted my credentials, but I'm getting this error. You know, I upgraded to the latest iOS. Now my mobile device management system doesn't work. You know, so it's yeah, like so there's like a greater understanding of the tech. Yeah. So now they're able to converse in the manner that a help desk person would understand. Like, hey, I, I updated my iOS on my iPhone, and now my my I can't get my Outlook email because my MDM isn't working. My mobile device management isn't working. You know, can you help me fix it? Here's the error message. So now you you've, you've now kind of witnessed you know how how the dialogue between help desk and some of the people in the workforce have have changed because i think um the early adopters of technology using androids or iphones and ipads um they're slowly you know um more into it than before um so when they do call the help desk there's a little bit more information to have that help desk technician help them out that's not to say that there are still some of those folks that have really no clue what's going on and you have to dig a little deeper, which is fine, you know, so. Um, so tell everyone about the turnover that you see. Um, I was talking. So turnover, if for anyone who might not know what that is, basically means like people who come into jobs and then they leave jobs. So from a recruiting standpoint, from when I was in recruiting, we would have a turnover percentage. So it would be calculated by the hire that we would have and how long they would stay. Or someone, do we have a large percentage of people we're hiring who come in and only work for six months to a year and then leave? Um, and what that statistic tells you is like the is more about a company culture. But I think it also has to do outside of a company I think it's a bigger issue and I think it's important also for business owners when they have people if you're hiring more than just a VA if you're hiring someone who's actually going to be part of your team um, making sure that they're put in positions um, and you're you're like what he was saying about his mentors in, in his job is believing in them to take on bigger tasks pushing them to do the bigger projects and to take on bigger tasks um i think that's really important to turn over as well sorry i kind of went on a tangent um what i was going to say is that um as i look you know if i look up a company and and i look at their management structure i'm seeing a lot of changes before that used to be vice president of human resources now it's chief human capital officer oh, or something yeah, hr stuff is so funny yeah so titles. it's like people people person uh people resources human capital yeah um Ugh, human capital and so gross. these mentors i'm talking about you know they were with the organization for over five years my the, my former cio retired after 25 my mentor as a manager he left the company after 10 years uh to work for a consulting firm um so all these mentors I've had worked for the company for a lot longer. I, I at the last company I was mentored, I was I worked there close to twenty years. So in that twenty years, a lot I I claim my success to see folks that worked for me, not necessarily direct reports, but for me, if they succeeded into other realms of management or took on more responsibilities, to me that was a success, not only for myself but for them. Because they would count on me to ask me questions about, you know, certain subject matters or, or certain things that, you know, they, they wanted to pursue and what type of classes to take. But getting back to the fact that, 
if you look at my father and my mother, my father joined the military at a <clears throat> at an age where he retired at the age of 38. So um, 20 years, he was 38 years old. Went back to school to improve himself, um, then worked for... Oh, we also found out you and him graduated high school the same year. Yes. That's wild to me. Yeah, but when, I, when, when my daughter says that, my dad went to adult school. Oh, yeah. He... <laughs> <clears throat> so my dad retired at, um, in 1976, and it took him a, a year to get his high school diploma. Um, because he was able to use some of this coursework from the Navy. So, yes, we did graduate the same year, but uh, two different ceremonies. I don't think I was there uh, for that. Um, but, yeah, we graduated from the same high school, same year. But my dad went to adult school at night. And then he ended up uh, getting another job for the Veterans Administration um, in, and re- San in San Diego and retired from that. So, you know, both those, organiza- both those organizations my dad had long tenure with. My mom worked maybe for a couple of healthcare systems, but the last one, she stayed there um, until they offered her early retirement because they were going to start outsourcing um, her department. Uh, the outsourced department wanted to keep her, but um, you know, she, she uh, the job that she had was very physically taxing. Uh, my mom's, you know, at the time was four ten, probably weighed hundred pounds, <laughs> so, so she she was a very tiny lady, but very strong, but. She ended up taking early retirement, but but then again, she worked there for a number of years. So in my mindset, in my generation, you work for a company for that long. However, uh, because of the way the landscape was changing in healthcare, you know, I took some positions, kind of fell short of those positions, ended up leaving, ended up... um, uh, uh, you know, going into a different organization and, uh, you know, finally landed at this one where I had really good mentors and, and leadership. But then again, most of those people were there for a number of years. So as I started um, getting into these leadership positions and moving into different um, companies, especially up in Orange County, L.A., I just noticed that the, um, the, uh, the, the different generations really wanted... I wouldn't say necessarily the same salary as me, but um, I would say that uh, they wanted to make a difference in the company right away. So um, if they weren't seeing that after a year, they would start looking. And it, again, it wasn't because of compensation. It wasn't because of the lack of people skills or being in an environmental fit with the company. It's that they just really wanted to make a difference. You know. They're, they're out of college. They want to, you know, they want to get these uh, these kind of experiences, but they just want to make sure there was a, they made an impact instantly. And for me, um, you had to go through the process. You had to make your sac- – not sacrifices, but you had to go through the motions to get to where you were at in my generation. You didn't start off as a manager. My CIO was a phlebotomist in the lab, so she had a clinical background. And from there, she then became a department systems analyst. And then she went into the IT. And then she became a manager. Then she became a CIO. So you could see that she... There's a progression. There's a progression there. Same thing with me. I went through a progression. I was a computer operator on the graveyard shift. Well, I think my generation, like, I think the intention is good, right? Like, I think it's an earnest intention to want to make an impact in whatever industry you're in. But, yeah, I think to make an impact, it's... 
a compounded effort. It doesn't happen in the first job you're in. And, and I think that for me, that's why I think I pursued, I don't want to say I pursued entrepreneurship to make an impact. I feel like that would be like the media trained <laughs> like thing to say, but I think like I just kind of happen, fell into it, I guess. But um, yeah, I think people, my generation, they just want to like hit those home runs. I also think, uh, Bree, is that um, there's technology now, and I'm my focus right now is in the IT realm. So certain jobs and tasks before where you needed a lot of manpower and effort are now pretty much automated. Right. Um, we used to have a process that we'd have to do every night called you know day and processes where all the charges for the day for the hospital were being processed and there had to be someone pressing buttons and entering commands to start that process and then to validate that all those bills and transactions um, came through correctly. Um, that used to be a manual process. We used to have a graveyard shift and then to print those bills. Well, technology improved, software improved, and we didn't need that we didn't need that resource anymore. So what did we do? We looked at what technology needs were going to be in for the future, and we shifted those folks that worked graveyard shift either into the night shift or the day shift with the caveat that they had to learn these skills. And some of them at the time, these were people my age at the time, decided they didn't want to do that. And so they chose to leave and wiped their hands clean of IT. They probably didn't want to adjust. They probably didn't want to change. It was a new paradigm shift for them. And another example I would give is telecom. Telecom is now internet network. And in the beginning, um, it was just all basically, you know, regular copper that you attach to a phone. And if you needed to move that phone to another office, you needed someone to program that, go to the room where the, all the wires are that and, and wired, hardwire that so the phone would work. With internet phones, you basically just move and plug it into a different outlet. It should work. Technically, it should work because it's a network device now. Early on, our net, our telecom guys were totally set against it. They gave every reason while this while this type of technology would fail. There was no backup. Blah blah blah. Well, you know what? They fi technology figured it out, and so I would try to mentor them, saying, "Look, guys, this is a new skill you could learn because." When this takes off and phones are now internet, you guys have another skill now to be telecom network engineers. So what would you tell someone who's like just starting out in their career or maybe they're taking on a new career and they're kind of starting at the bottom? Would you tell them to stay at a company for 10 years? Or no, would you tell I, I, them no. to learn skills and move on? It depends where they're at in their, in, uh, you know, their biological oh, age, right, right. where they're at in their career path. Right now, if it's in the private sector, you don't know if your company is going to be bought out in five years or merge with another company. Healthcare is the same way, but it doesn't happen dramatically. Um, you know, there's some healthcare systems in, in California that were profitable, that are bought out by other profitable healthcare systems. Nonprofits became, become profitable, profit, for profit hospitals. There's a lot of changing pieces in healthcare, but not as great as a commercial company right. that's being, you know, prepped to be absorbed or bought out by another company. Some of these people that start off these startup companies, Techs, yeah. yeah, they'll say, "Hey, my five-year plan is to be bought out by Hewlett, by, by like, Hewlett Packard, or yeah. by some other company, and then I'm done. I made my millions or billions, and I'm yeah. done." So. 
for right now, someone uh, either your age or that's starting out in college, be realistic. Um, you know, if you've got a degree in business, l- learn about business. It doesn't mean you're going to come in as a as someone making you know X amount of dollars right away. Learn a business. Um, business administration is just so broad in terms of uh, description. What kind of business is it? What do you think if I still was recruiting? Do you think I would be happy? I think if you were still recruiting, you would have taken what you've learned and started your own headhunting business. That's my honest opinion. Because like me, you're a people person. You want to improve. Where are some of the efficiencies we can improve? What are some of the, for you specifically in your generation, what social media aspects, apps that can be developed? Your, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, recruiter, yeah. Indeed, what Instagram. what things can you maximize to get recruits to you that you can place in companies, and not even use what's available now? Take what's available now. Can you improve it? Oh, can I'm you... sure. One of these days, you guys, I'm going to say it now. I'm going to develop an app. In what? I don't know, but I'm going to have an app someday. Yeah. So, um, if you were still recruiting, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean that you can't start recruiting and headhunting, but. Are you headhunting for technology companies, finance companies, or just general? But using the tools that you have today, ZipRecruiter, Monster, um, what can be improved on that? You know, I, I don't know the answer. I think for me, I mean, it goes back to like making that whole thing about making an impact. I think for me, I would want to make an impact in the recruiting world, which is why I left it was because people companies begin to see people as numbers like you have to and I know this sounds so horrible to say but like when we're as a recruiter we're looking we're seeing all of the positions we have open we have 10 positions open for this one particular market 20 in another market and we're just trying to get that number down and that percentage down and it, it there's so many facets that go into it but for me I just could never get over seeing a person as a number which is why i would i would have probably had a completely different experience if i was recruiting for like executives where that's such a bigger position to fill i needed to have that experience like i wasn't expecting to go in and start recruiting cfos like come on let's or any c-level executives but um you, you make a point about being a number um the companies i worked for before and this is just down to the basics I would go into the payroll system and you'd actually use a username to get into there to input your time. Mm-hmm. Yes, you, you put in like whatever. You're, right, well, I think well, in no, those... Well, no, where I'm going with okay. this is the company I'm working for now, when I go to the pay- payroll system, I enter a number. And I have to, I don't have that number memorized because it's seven digits, so I have to keep it on my iPhone. Okay, what's my employee number? That's how I'm logging in to a system to enter my payroll information. But I think in a payroll way, that makes sense, right? Because it's like automated. You need to have a number. It's like your bank account is a number. I'm talking about like when you're recruiting someone, it's like you're talking to that person. You're getting to know them. What skills do they have? Mm. And for me, I was like kind of what you were saying. It wasn't about what's on the resume what's the job description but like what if someone was actually like a really cool person who was like i will work so hard to make sure that i develop the skills like there was it was taking out that human aspect of i can actually do this job you just have to give me the opportunity Mm -hmm. to learn i was taking it from the fact that everything in in life is a number right you have a number of employees what i'm saying is for me i feel now in the role i am doing is i am a number 
Whereas before my other companies, I didn't mm. feel that way. Because Do you to me, feel like that ties into like why people are leaving companies is because they don't feel that like there there is a there is a perception and mindset with folks I would say at a different age group than I am that they are just a number that it doesn't matter if they quit or they get fired they're going to be replaced so there's no sense of um, especially people that are getting terminated for non performance or doing something wrong um, to them they're just a number. And like you said, because they've been growing up with entering passwords and things, whereas when I started in IT, yes, you know, the, the, we had to enter passwords. But even before that, before technology, there were no passwords. Right. You just went in. You either had a key, a physical key to get into a, a place, and you kind of did your work, you know. Um, but I, I, I think um, – and my statements are from my experiences – Obviously, there's really good people out there that are trying to do a good oh, job. Oh, absolutely. But I think life today, especially in the IT realm, because we can do so much now and so much faster that there's an ex- expectation to get things done right away. To grow. And that – and multitask. I haven't – in this position, I multitask so much and so much is going on in my brain that um, people get burned out, stressed out, mm-hmm. you know. So what would you, I mean, I agree. I think people, I get burnt out all the time. Not all the time, but like I get myself into this mode where I feel it coming before it happens, Um, which is why I like sleep is so important. Also, I just like to mention that he is the most high maintenance guest that I have ever had on. He needed water he needed a comfortable position and i need where's the the m&ms he needed a snack he needed like there was there was a whole thing whole conversation that went on before we recorded i was like you are the most high maintenance guest all of my guests have been cool i mean granted they've all been on like the internet but um so how would you like to end this what would you like to say if some most of this audience is entrepreneurs actually 60 percent of them are men I commend you. I come from an old school where entrepreneurship um, is a large risk. Um, obviously, we didn't have the technology back then that you all have today at your disposal. You have your Google ads. You have your funnels. You have all that. In my in my generation, it was newspaper ads and word of mouth <laughs> or a business card or some kind of community event where you could sell your, your, your wares. And oh, your you surf. love a community event. Yes, I do. But <laughs> um, I, I applaud all the entrepreneurs that are on this podcast. I consider my daughter a very successful entrepreneur. I just wish I had the acumen and the uh, fortitude and, and not the nervousness of, of starting my own business because, again, I'm, I'm old school. My parents were very conservative. Um, with the way they approached things in their jobs, that's why they only basically had the jobs they had. They, you know, they never ventured out to either make more money or take on additional responsibilities, let alone rock the rock the boat uh, within their family realm. But um, what did you say the other night? We were talking, and I was like, "You should just do this. Like, just do it." And you were like, "You need to stop." Like, because you were like, "That's like my." You were sad. You were like, that's the one part of your personality that I don't like. But I honestly think, even though I don't like it all the time either, because I can get my hands in too many pots, 
I honestly think that's why I'm good at what I do is because I'm just like, I'll just do it. Like, I'll just want to do things like right away. <laughs> well, but and I think you're way more methodical than me. Like you think things through <laughs> and I my, just like I want I see what I want to do and I'm like, I'll just do it. Like, I don't put too much into it. Well, I think it's it, let me use the analogy of hunting. My daughter is more like in the swamps, <laughs> blowing the, the duck collar, and as the ducks fart flying away, she's got the shotgun, buckshot, <laughs> and whatever hits, the birds hits. And I'm the guy that's going to be out deer hunting, looking at one deer through the scope. And oh, no, sure that, I would not have patience for that. I'd be like, that we shot, need to eat tonight, so we're just going to And that one here. shot, that one shot, bam, it's done. Whereas my daughter is like, just shoot and whatever ducks fall out of the sky, that's a success. Cleo, go get them. Yeah. So I think that's a different mindset. And there's nothing wrong. They both put meat, uh, a meal on the table. Right. Except one takes a little bit more patience. The other one, it's a high risk. very patient. It's a high risk, high reward type of thing, right? Because you don't know where that buckshot's going. You know it's going to hit a couple of birds, but you don't know how many. And for those of you that are vegans, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, sorry to the vegans. Yes. And the uh, vegetarians. Yes. But um, that's the way I would look at the way Brianna looks at business and the way I look at business and, and stuff. Now, granted, I'm a mess. You should see my bedroom. It's a mess. Oh, yeah. Because I'm constantly trying to think of different ways because I don't want to just go out there and, and, and attack a, a problem or whatever without really thinking about stuff. So I kind of prioritize things in my head but not necessarily pick up after myself but i'm super organized but if you look at my car it's a completely different thing it's very organized and clean because i probably spend more time in my car commuting than i do in my room sleeping but or just driving to your community events yes (laughs) my daughter has a hard time that her dad's very popular. oh yeah he is so much more social than me yeah i'm very popular um okay i'm always going let's Take, we need to humble you for a minute, okay? <clears throat> well, first of all, I think it's my time to start. All my friends are empty nesters now. They're grandparents. We're doing the stuff that we couldn't do when we were raising our children. So now we're out there. We're out partying in the gas lamp quarter. We're doing all these fundraiser events, formal events. And um, it's pretty unique to see because when we run into younger generations at some of these clubs... I'm looking around like, man, these could be my grandkids. These could be my kids. Okay, we need to wrap this up. You're getting on your high horse. I got to humble you out because everyone else likes to blow your ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well. Okay, thank you for being here. What is your name, by the way? One more thing. If you love this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Head over to my Instagram and tag me at livingbreely with you listening to this episode. I'd love to hear from you, see you, connect with you, and know which episodes and interviews you're finding valuable. For any courses, freebies, or blog posts mentioned in this episode,